Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, June 9th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, National Editor. The 2016 presidential primaries are in the book. Somebody please tell Bernie Sanders. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 600 to 750 million. That's the range Trump advisors tell us he needs to battle Hillary Clinton. 11, the number of days between Clinton's speech slamming Donald Trump and his likely response on Monday, if it happens on Monday. 52, the percentage of Americans who knew enough about Elizabeth Warren to have an opinion. And 9, the number of Senate races taking place in battleground states. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. All right, here we are again with Chief Investigative Reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. National political reporter who was just photographed by Washington Life, oh Eli Stobel. Killing me, killing me. And Thanks. senior politics editor and Philly great Charlie Matessian. Hi, Christian. Data point number one, 600 to 750 million. That's the range that Trump advisors privately tell Ken that the candidate needs to raise. That's the campaign plus the RNC plus the super PAC to be competitive against Hillary Clinton. Ken, what's the history of this number and why is it no longer one billion? Yeah, that's that's a uh, key point there. That was the number. One billion was the number that uh, Donald Trump threw around and that everyone kind of assumed was going to be necessary for him to run a top tier general election campaign. This is just like looking at the you know past presidential campaigns, looking at 2012 and looking at how much Hillary Clinton is going to raise is probably going to be a lot more than the one billion dollar figure. So uh, there was some sense that he would be able to, despite not building a fundraising operation in the general election, I'm sorry, in the primary election, when he largely got by on the strength of free media and these huge rallies that he had, there was a sense that once he won, once he sort of uh, clinched the nomination, that he would be able to rely on the RNC and rely on all the party's major donors to rally around him. Well, that hasn't really happened. And so now his advisors have kind of downgraded privately the estimate of how much they think that they need to raise to be able to run a campaign against Hillary Clinton. But even that, that $600 million to $750 million, may be optimistic. It's inflated. Our, yeah, our own Alex Eisenstadt talking to a number of key donors suggested that they may come in at even less than that, perhaps half of that, like $333 million. That would be a huge downward drop on the trajectory that we've seen over the years of these presidential campaigns becoming more and more expensive. And I think it would open him to being really outmaneuvered by Hillary Clinton's operation, which, again, is going to raise a lot more money and which we've already seen for all the, the faults that people want to ascribe to Hillary Clinton as a candidate her operation is top tier. So this is an interesting point. So he started at $1 billion and he tried to get in front of the idea that he couldn't raise that much by saying he didn't need that much. So let's explore that a little bit. OK, so we had during the primary 
Donald Trump not spending much at all and gaining huge boosts in his numbers just by using free media, right? Why can't we expect the same thing to work for him in the general election, Eli? Well, we've already seen in the sort of opening weeks of the general election that the, the, the media that he's been getting has been tougher, right? You had the stories about the veteran scandal and the, is he really delivering on the money he said he was going to raise for these groups? Then all the comments about Trump University. I mean, the media, you know, he's not playing to the same audience. I think there's this um, sort of misinformed idea that for whatever reason, the, the press went easy on him during the primary. The press did not go easy on him. The press put, you know, offered huge exposure for all the, you know, offensive comments that he made about John McCain. It just, it didn't matter because one, the novelty of it all, and two, the audience. It was a primary electorate, and now the entire country is watching. And I think what the campaign, you know, th it is self-serving to say, oh, I don't, I don't need to raise the money now. I'll get free media. I'll just do these rallies. Well, the rallies are, are great for Trump's ego. We know that. But are they going to be effective for the next four months when we've seen them? You know, he has to get progressively more and more interesting to maintain our, our attention. And yet getting more interesting may be... Uh, may prevent him from actually becoming more presidential and doing the thing that he needs to do to actually win voters. So I think that, you know, the sort of free media that he was getting and what he needed to do in the primary, there was an alignment there. And I think now as we move forward, maybe those, those two things are not so aligned. Well, and I think the other reason why we've seen the shift in his free media is that during the primary – there were so many things going on. There were so many opponents in the race. There were so many players. And so if a story, if he found himself in a bad news cycle, if he found himself the subject of a story that was not beneficial to him, he could very easily throw something else out, throw something sensational or controversial out, and change the subject. And what we've seen in this past week that you just alluded to where he's been unable to change the subject. These stories about Trump University and about uh, his donations to veterans groups or lack thereof have been hard for him to shift away from. And I think part of the reason for that is the natural evolution of the race. Now we're down to two people one-on-one, -on -one, and these are going to be the stories and the themes that we're going to keep on talking about. So you're not going to be able to just put up a crazy tweet and change the subject. But also, he doesn't have, just like he doesn't have, you know, the fundraising capacity that most people think a presidential candidate's going to need in a general election. He also doesn't have the communication staff, the rapid response team. I mean, he's giving a speech about Hillary Clinton, and it's weeks after she's been out there, and he didn't respond to her speech. He hasn't responded effectively to a lot of these stories, and it's because they haven't hired, they haven't staffed up. They say, oh, it's a lean campaign. We pride ourselves they have on no that money. kind of operation. You know, this is our view of government, lean and mean. But really, it's a justification of a campaign that has just been unable to staff up. Hold on a second, Charlie. I want to just circle back to the number that Ken threw out there because it's astonishing. The, the idea that the low end now might be something like $333 million. That's like a California statewide race we're talking about now. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But still, keep in mind that before this election cycle started, it would have been universally recognized on the Republican side and the Democratic side that $1 billion was the price of entry. Now we're talking about a third of that. That is going to have tremendous implications on the Republican ability to win that race. It's not, it's it's rapid response like you guys were talking about. It's digital. Uh, it's analytics. Well, let me challenge this a staff. second. Hold on a second. So I think the question is, if you're looking at that $1 billion, how much of that money for Romney? Like, let's go back and look at that for Romney. Romney spent about half of that on advertising, 
for himself, right? The question for me is, how much does Trump really need if he's getting his own free media? Like, let's remember that through March, he received $2 billion in free media, according to MediaQuant. The question is really, if he's going to continue to get that kind of coverage and that kind of access to the networks and that kind of exposure, does he still need a billion bucks? I think that's a great point. Uh, And that's the question to ask. And and Trump has a legitimate argument to to make on that point. But my argument would be his free media isn't like everybody else's free media. There is a cost to it. Every time he gets this kind of free media, it's because he's saying something outrageous. It's because he is scraping away people. He is bleeding from a lot of these hits. So yes, he can get on TV whenever he wants and he can command the screen whenever he wants, but it doesn't come free. It's always after one of these episodes where he's going after a judge or he says something that's guaranteed to alienate some constituency somewhere. Well, it's not just the media. It's not just the media that he's getting. It's the response. I mean, what have we seen all week? We've seen comments from every Republican on Capitol Hill being chased down in a hallway. Do you still support Donald Trump? And the comments are not whether, you know, whether they're saying, oh, yeah, I still support him. But like, what a stupid comment. There's that that coverage is not helping him. Let's actually talk about that. Okay, it's been 11 days, Eli, between the time that Clinton gave her speech slamming Trump and his likely response on Monday, if it happens on Monday. And during that period of time, he made some rather stupid comments about an American born judge whose parents happened to be Mexican. Um, And then he spent an entire week trying to recover from that. Bring us into that story. Well, that was the news cycle. This was how Donald Trump spent the last week or so of the sort of you know, period between, you know, him clinching the nomination and the general election officially starting uh, on Tuesday with the end of the, the primaries. And you had two stories. You had the Clinton speech that just reset, reframed the race the way she'd like people to see it. It was a very effective speech, point by point, explaining why Donald Trump, as she said, is temperamentally unfit to be president. And there was no response. Republicans did not rise up and, and, and take issue with that speech. Crickets. Trump's campaign didn't do anything. And then Trump's campaign, with the message they were pushing was, this judge won't be fair to me because he's a Mexican. And then all the stories, as we said, about people's response to that. Republican Paul Ryan saying days after he'd endorsed him that that is the definition of a racist statement. So the responses to both the big stories of the week, the one Trump was pushing and the one Clinton was pushing, were totally negative for Trump. And there is nobody in-house in that campaign. There was one overwhelmed communications director, Hope Hicks, and Corey Lewandowski. That's the comm staff. The, there are no, the, the surrogates who are on CNN are sort of freelancing. A lot of them, with the exception of Chris Christie, all had, had no choice but to acknowledge that, yes, he, he shouldn't have really said that. So even the surrogates weren't doing their job. And this is sort of endemic of this sort of you know, one man band campaign. It's all Trump. There's no one else there. They can't hire because of the internal, the infighting and the dysfunction and nobody trusts, you know, if Manafort hires somebody, the Corey side won't trust them and vice versa. Um, and so they're just at this impasse and it's really hindering their ability to respond in a news cycle. He thinks he controls all the media and the earned media, but it really did get away from him in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and the, the, such a key point about the, the how we see the effects of the skeletal staff you know, he doesn't have the money to hire the comp staff. But then there's the bigger question. If he did hire the comp staff, would he listen to them? You know, we, we, we saw the, uh, Bloomberg get access to this, uh, this conference call in which he was 
basically rebutting his staff's own advice to his surrogates uh, as to how to handle the situation with the judge. And it, it gets back to this bigger question of like, can Trump even be managed if he had the ability to hire the staff to, to, to give him the advice? We did see some evidence this week that perhaps he was willing to try to tone it back. That is his victory speech uh, after, after the California primary, reading from a teleprompter, much shorter, much blander, and I would argue much less effective than when he's speaking extemporaneously. Oh, so, that's an interesting observation. You thought it was less effective. I, thought, I mean, well, it, it had to be. I mean, he had to tone it down, but like it was not what people expect from Donald Trump, and that's the trade-off. If you're going to be careful and not offend, you're also going to lose part of the key element of your appeal. Guys, this doesn't square. We have Eli here saying he's got to be more presidential. He's got to have a different, well, think, he's got I to have a different bearing. I think that reassured the people, you know, the establishment figures. I mean, he d- gave that speech and he put out the, the statement on Trump University a day after that conference call berating surrogates and saying, don't listen to this crap, double down, triple down on the judge attacks. The next day he's sitting there saying, here's a statement, I'm not talking about this anymore. And he gives this sort of anodyne, teleprompter address that night. So he got a message from someone. Reince Priebus called him and said, yeah. will you knock it off? And so and you have to start, you have to reframe the message around Hillary Clinton. And I think at some point, he, Trump had been hearing that from Paul Manafort and from other advisors, just wasn't ready to listen. He finally listened, but it gets at this sort of herky-jerk nature of this one-man band Honestly, campaign. that's one of the most interesting things about the reporting that you did leading into that. And that's the idea that Reince Priebus called him and said, tone it down. I mean, I don't know exactly what Reince said, but something he said something that got Trump to recognize that what he was doing was hurting not just himself, but the rest of the party. Well, part of Trump's appeal, like Ken says, is the sort of improvisational, impolitic approach, right? He just kind of shoots from the hip and he's interesting and different and people like that. But, you know, his base might like the the sort of things that he impulsively says. A lot of them do not square with what he needs to say to the general election audience. I don't think it's an either or proposition when it comes to Trump's style. Uh, He doesn't have to be one or the other, but he does have to find a balance. I I sort of look at him as as almost like a great street ball player whose natural instincts are terrific, just a great natural athlete, but ultimately to succeed, they have to stop being improvisational all the time. They have to play defense. They have to play a more team-oriented game. And so he doesn't have to go one direction or the other, but he does have to modulate the game and uh, pick up elements from both sides. But I didn't streetball what i saw this you remember the movie problem child from the 90s millennials go watch it it's like this awful red-headed kid donald trump is the problem child right now for the republican party 69 years old and we're sitting here talking about how can we get him to follow how can we get him to stay on message what can we do to make him calm down i mean it's it's insane but this is the nominee of the republican party and that was the news for for days and days was oh god he did it again oh no how do we rein him in and it you know, that's a problem. It's not like, oh, this guy's so skilled. The last week was really bad for him and for the Republican Party. Ken, you're working on a big story about somebody inside of his orbit. Tell us about this piece. There's been a lot of coverage of Paul Manafort and Paul Manafort's past. The guy had kind of disappeared for two decades, really, before he had reemerged as Donald Trump's key campaign advisor and then uh, was elevated and became the campaign chairman. You know, we write a lot about what's going on now inside the campaign with his turf war with Corey Lewandowski, but there is such a rich history of what he was doing during that time when he was off the grid, when he was off the U.S. domestic political stage. He was building this 
uh, really pioneering role for himself as an international political consultant and lobbyist who was whispering in the ears of some of the uh, most unsavory despots around the world. What we did is we went back and tracked uh, and told the story of really his first effort on that front, which was representing the Philippine strongman Ferdinand Marcos in 1985, we found some crazy stuff from then from uh, former colleagues and rivals uh, in the Philippines talking about how this guy uh, didn't really play by the same rule book. We even have some speculation from uh, folks who were around back then that he was involved in some of this un, uh, undisclosed money flow around Ferdinand Marcos. We have an anecdote within this story about a dinner party in Manila where a Philippine congressman said that he gave Manafort $10 million from Ferdinand Marcos to give as a donation to Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign in 1984, which Manafort worked on. Obviously, uh, that would have been incredibly illegal, not just because it was an over-the-limit donation, but because it was from a foreign source. We found no evidence that that money actually made it into Reagan's campaign, but we found a lot of smoke around Manafort and his role uh, with, with Marcos and with this money. So you've talked to Paul. What does he say about this? Uh, well, he says that that one story uh, about the, the $10 million is total fiction. And he says these rumors have sort of swirled around him. He acknowledges that these rumors have swirled around him for the better part of 30 years. Uh, but he attributes their reemergence now to his current role. To an extent, I think that's right. Like we wouldn't be writing this story about about him and about and trying to you know put, uh, the sort of unpack his past in this way, were he not prominent again in American politics. But to an extent, he's wrong. This is not coming from Democrats. If anything, this is coming from Republicans who work with him over the years and work with him back then a lot of whom are incredibly turned off by the guy and his tactics. They think of him as a mercenary. More than one used that term to describe him and, and suggested his tactics were unethical. These are people, these are frankly some of the same people who are concerned about Trump and Trump's uh, ability to uh, represent the Republican Party and carry it to victory in November. So the fact that the guy who was brought in to help write the ship for Donald Trump is regarded by many of his former colleagues as uh, as maybe uh, tactically unfit, if not temperamentally unfit, is maybe not a great sign for Republicans. Let's get to another data point. And this one is the number nine. It's how many Senate races are taking place in battleground states. Charlie, tell me. Well, we've identified, and we're going to roll out in a, in a project next week, uh, the 11 battleground states. And uh, what's interesting about those states isn't just that these are the states that are going to are likely going to determine uh, the outcome of the presidential election. Uh, they are important in the presidential context, but they're also really important because they have, most of them have really competitive Senate races right now. And because of the effect that the presidential race is going to have, because of the impact that the top of the ticket often has in close Senate races, they are going to track together. And so I think it explains a lot of the freak out on the Republican side uh, this week. And I think there was an undeniable change in the climate of the Republican political ecosystem this week, because for the first time, they, it really sunk into Republicans uh, with the Judge Curiel statements. Uh, it sunk in for the first time that, geez, we own this every single news cycle for the next 150 days, day after day after day. This is our life. And it's really important, not just because they worry about the nominee, but they worry about the impact of that on these nine battleground Senate races. 
So walk me through who backed away from Trump after this and how that's relevant to their race. Well, it, it's relevant in almost every close race. And you can take a look at Pennsylvania, for example, where you've got Senator Pat Toomey's in a tight race. Already, he's facing Democratic hits about a Toomey-Trump ticket. Rob Portman in Ohio also owns Trump right now. I mean, you could just go down the battleground Senate list and you will see a Republican candidate who's getting hammered for Donald Trump. And keep in mind, that's not just the battleground states where we've got the tough uh, Senate races. You could even expand it to a place like Arizona, where John McCain is also, that's not a battleground state, but there are lots of folks who think Arizona might become a really close state by the end. And these statements that Trump makes has a cost on John McCain in Arizona. I think the Pennsylvania example is a really interesting one. Wait, Toomey's up what, one point? I mean, that's how close that race is right now. And he's one of the Republicans who actually has not disavowed Trump. You think there's some thinking inside that camp that because it's Pennsylvania, the allegiance to Trump is important or somehow beneficial? You know, it's, it's a really smart observation because if Pennsylvania is really unique in a lot of ways because there is strong Trump, uh, Trump sentiment uh, in the western part of the state, in Appalachian, Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania. The T. Uh, uh, in the Republican T as well. Uh, the the problem, though, of course, is, and, and that I think is how Toomey sees his path to re-election. For example, I was really interested to uh, see that Democrats are hitting Toomey on, for disrespecting Philadelphia. Uh, but at the same time, Toomey doesn't need Philadelphia. He got crushed in Philadelphia. Nobody needs Philadelphia. I'm sorry. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Somebody cut her off, please. Although I'd like, to point out, I'd like to point out that that was the thinking before Ed Rendell won the governorship in 2002. You know, everyone ran against uh, Philadelphia in statewide races. But Ed Rendell said, OK, I'm going to take that as a strength. I'm going to build out from Philadelphia, get the collar counties, build up a little bit into the Lehigh Valley, get Pittsburgh. And he won. And he won handily by turning that conventional wisdom on its ear. So I think that people do need Philadelphia, Kristen. Mm -hmm. Well, Toomey didn't. And I think that the thinking is that uh, he just need you know, he can't get too much distance from Trump. But at the same time, if he wants to compete in the Philly suburbs and at least keep it close and by close, I mean, not lose 95 to five or 99 to one in Philadelphia that, uh, you know, he has to keep a balance there. But he can't get too far away from Trump because of the West. You know what the reporting showing about all this is that all of the concern is starting to percolate again. And it's giving new life to this never Trump movement, which is starting to call up the delegates and ask questions. Is there an opportunity here for us at the convention? Eli, thoughts? Well, I know that a lot of the people who are sort of holding out hope. I mean, Ted Cruz did not take everybody off the payroll and send them home. He still has some delegate staff holding out hope that, hey, maybe... If Trump screws this up, there'll be an opportunity. What last week did is just sort of open that door a little bit more and let him a little more light in on this possibility that maybe there's a case to be made that the Rules Committee should consider unbinding the delegates. You have a lot of prominent never-Trump uh, folks in the media pushing that idea. You have Eric Erickson suggesting that uh, Scott Walker would be willing to put himself forward. I mean, like, you know, if you give him the nomination on a silver platter, I suppose, yeah, I might be willing to take it and be the nominee. Um, so not a, not a shock there. But all these people who have been sitting there sort of hedging on Trump, they're hedging a little more. And this is something that gets talked. This is not the story that they want out there or that Reince Priebus wants or that Donald Trump wants is they're trying to unify the party. And that's what they've been trying to do over the last month. And really, the last week has been a huge setback for whatever, um, you know, loose unity they've been able to sort of knot together. Yeah. And I think you see two sort of schools of thought. And, and it's, you know, at 
we were close to sort of unifying, and we were close to seeing one united school of thought, which is, okay, we need to get behind Trump, and you know maybe he's not the best for the Senate races, but we'll spend, we'll make sure that some of the spending goes down ballot and goes to protecting these Senate races. Uh, and now we're seeing a reemergence of, of never Trump, and frankly, if, if that continues to build, I know that I've talked to plenty of donors who would just as soon start writing their big checks to some kind of never-Trump type of entity. I don't know that it would be necessarily very helpful at this stage, but I don't think it was very helpful in the past. And that would both freeze up money that could otherwise go to Trump, and that could also hurt efforts to build a huge bank for some of these outside groups that are really being relied on to spend heavily on these Senate races to mitigate whatever damage that Donald Trump might do at the top of the ticket. You know, the, I think that this this dynamic is embodied with the with the Koch brothers and the Koch network. The Kochs had basically determined, okay, we're not going to spend any money on Trump. We're going to stay out of the presidential race. And then they stored, as we saw this, this unity effort building, we saw news that they were going to set up a meeting between top uh, Koch officials and top officials on Trump's campaign. I think it is notable that it's not Charles Koch or David Koch and I it's not too. Donald Trump. I do too. Nonetheless, they were amenable to it. And you have to think that this last week of news will sort of push them back into the camp of of not just not spending on Trump, but redirecting all their money down the ballot to save some of these Senate races. It hurt investor confidence, obviously. But, you know, Trump's pronouncements that it, we're going to be unified, it's going to be beautiful, it doesn't work like that, right? He has to recognize that this unity, whatever gains they made towards unity in the last few weeks, that it's really, really fragile. And he should recognize that because he watches the shows. He sees the people sitting there saying, oh, this, this bothers me, I'm not sure. He, he understands the intense criticism because he responds to it. And yet there was an arrogance. When they got Paul Ryan, they said, oh, we didn't have to really make any concessions to get him. Everybody's just going to come on board. And you can see with you know a little carelessness and cockiness, you have a week of bad media and it really sets that back. It's time to bring in Scott Bland, the always smart editor of Campaign Pro. Hello. Hi again. All right, you're bringing us another data point. It's 52%, and that's the share of Americans who knew enough about Elizabeth Warren to have any kind of an opinion about her when Gallup asked them last year. Tell us, what does that tell you about the likelihood of her being the Veep? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. The reason why this number stood out to me is because at this point, uh, Elizabeth Warren is the only person uh, kind of on the realistic bench of vice presidential candidates who has a national profile. For Democrats right now. And that's a very stark contrast to what we've seen in past years. Uh, the only once uh, since 1988 have uh, Democrats nominated someone for vice president who hadn't run for president before. Mm. And uh, that was Joe Lieberman in 2000. Uh, everyone else has had this kind of pre-existing, you know, familiarity to some extent. They had a brand. Yeah. And and it wasn't necessarily a, a, a big brand, right? You know, like, Joe Biden ran for president twice, but he never made it all that far, you know. Um, but Warren, you know, to to a greater extent than anyone uh, else in the Democratic Party right now, besides Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, uh, has a a national brand of her own at this point, which well, makes her kind that. of intriguing. I mean, does she have? It's one thing to say, okay, she has. 50% of Americans know who she is or they have an opinion about her, right? But what about what they think of her, right? So they might know who she is, but do they like her? Do they dislike her? Do they 
do they see her the way we see her in Washington, which is someone of the left, someone who is hyper progressive, someone who has a very fixed brand and it is one that is antagonistic, um, at least with regard to Wall Street, banking, the financial sector? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually. Charlie and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday, and I, um, you know, I'll throw it over to you in a second, Charlie. But I, I, th- I thought it was interesting in 2014 to see that even while you had uh, Democratic senators, even from places like Colorado, with Mark Udall running from Obama pretty much as fast as they could, uh, the Democratic candidates in places like West Virginia and Kentucky were inviting Warren to come fundraise for them, campaign for them, rally for them. Um, which Mark Udall had her in Colorado, too. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Didn't work uh, out too well for him, though, did it? Well, well and, it, no. and that, that's the thing. It didn't work out too well for him. But, like, the, you know, I, I think that that speaks to her being a little, potentially a little something more than just this, like, doctrinaire left-wing liberal, right? She's, you know, I think that the, like, populist stuff on the banks appeals, you know, you know beyond, like, traditional ideological borders. Yeah, I mean, my first experience with her was when she was running for Senate uh, at Netroots Nation, which is the big uh, annual progressive gathering. And I could not believe how gaga that gathering was for her. Uh, I mean, people were going bananas for Elizabeth Warren there. They were all wearing buttons. They loved her. And what we've discovered about her is that she is a very uh, fascinating character with with uh, very well-developed political skills. She, she's good on TV, but what we it, she mints money uh, online. But what we don't know is how ultimately she would get defined at a national level. Uh, we don't know. Would she be this populist lightning rod who took on Wall Street and stuck it to them? Or will she be uh, caricatured as a fancy pants, uh, Harvard professor from the most liberal state in the nation. We just don't know yet. And uh, I think that is still to, to be defined. I, I Just one, one quick thing is I, I think that's, that's a really important point. I think that, that she is both less well-known than I think Washington like, gives her credit for um, and also like less, less kind of rigidly defined uh, within those people who do know her. So back in Colorado last January, couple months after the election, uh, Peter Hart came out and did a focus group, and he did it in the 6th Congressional District, which is the Aurora suburbs on the east side of Denver. And it's a total swing district, heavy Hispanic population. Pretty, you know, a Republican holds a seat, Mike Kaufman, right now. Um, And he asked 12 voters about a whole bunch of politicians. And Elizabeth Warren was the one that had the most unique and the strongest appeal. And this is including with Republican voters. And, And I remember reading about this and hearing about it and, and thinking through about what we know of that district and how it's sort of a microcosm swing district and why she would have appeal that cuts across party lines. And it was the authenticity. It wasn't. And I think in a way it sort of, you know, foreshadowed the Trump phenomenon because Trump cuts across the sort of traditional ideological divide of left, right, right? His ideas, his policy portfolio, if there is one, it is not a traditional conservative policy portfolio. He appeals because of the authenticity, because of the populism, because he's something new. And Elizabeth Warren, even though she is now the biggest Trump attack dog out there, she appeals for the same reason. And And people saw it in this focus group, you know, back in January of 2015, which was, they said, you know, I'd like to talk more with her because she seems authentic. And she had, she had struck a chord already. With God, and these isn't sort that exactly of, what Hillary Clinton needs right now? Yes, I think it is. But she, she appeals to those sort of disaffected, blue-collar, middle-class 
voters, white voters, the, the very people that Democrats are struggling with and who Trump, for whatever reason, has this deep resonance with. You know, and with. it's almost like she is, she knows this about herself and she is auditioning already for this attack dog role. I mean, think about a couple of the things that she said just over the course of the last few days. Trump is a loud, nasty, thin-skinned fraud, a small, insecure money grubber. He, she said about that judge, Curiel, he'll have no problem surviving Trump's nasty temper tantrums. She in March said Trump is a loser. I mean, these are things that Hillary Clinton doesn't say, she implies, but, he'll, but Elizabeth Warren will go out there and say it, and it resonates because she says it in a way that feels like she believes it. Yeah, like she feels it in her gut. I mean, Hillary did better in her speech in San Diego uh, at the end of last month when she finally laid out this articulate case and, and had some data to back it up. But for a while on the stump, you could see Hillary didn't really seemed like she wanted to be responding to Trump. She seemed like she was reading from notes. And Elizabeth Warren just let him have it. And the fire is, again, it's it's not just the populism. It's also the communications ability and the, and the ability to sort of drive a message and come across as really genuine that she also, you could say, is a trait she shares with Trump. One thing we haven't discussed, though, is whether she wants it or, or would want it. I mean, if, I, if I'm Elizabeth Warren... Why do I want to be vice president? To me, it's a step down for her. She is a powerful leader of a movement right now, and I think she has a much bigger megaphone and much more power to uh, affect the kind of change she's talking about in her current position than she would as a vice president. And why is she trial ballooning it? That's a good question. I, I don't know because uh, that's a smart point because it is coming from her camp. Don't you think she wins either way? I mean, she has this stature within the Democratic Party right now that really nobody else has. But if they win and she's on the ticket and she's vice president, she's not going to lose that. If they lose, I mean, Paul Ryan do, is doing okay, even though he was on the ticket, they lost, went back to Congress. So I think that she's in a pretty good position politically, whether this works out, whether she gets on the ticket or not. Um, she's a pretty important voice and is going to be in this election and beyond. What do you think, Scott, about Harry Reid coming out and saying that he wants her to be the running mate? What does that mean for him? I mean, this is a guy who is focused on the Senate and winning it back. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. You know, we've seen stories over the last few weeks of not just now him saying he, he wants it to be her, uh, but of him dispatching staff to look into Massachusetts' uh, uniquely bizarre rules for replacing senators when, when they resign. Because So if you go all the way back to 2004, when John Kerry was running— uh, Massachusetts Democrats in the state legislature changed the law there to uh, prevent then-Governor Mitt Romney from being able to appoint a Republican replacement for, for Kerry if he were to win the White House. And uh, obviously that didn't happen, but it ended up uh, kind of cascading forward into Scott Brown getting elected in, in this special election process that they, that they passed at that point. And so now at this point, Massachusetts once again has a Republican governor, a very popular one, I should add, Charlie Baker, um, who would be tasked with uh, appointing a replacement for, for Warren for that kind of brief interregnum period. Reed has obviously come to the conclusion that, that either, you know, that, that this is not, the control of the Senate is not going to hang in the balance based on this. Um, and and also, I, I saw some interesting theories floating around on, on Twitter yesterday about uh, maybe maybe Reid uh, wouldn't wouldn't mind and and Chuck Schumer, the incoming Senate Democratic leader, wouldn't mind having Warren out of their out of their hair uh, a little <laughs> bit um, in in a future Senate session. I don't know what to make about that one, but I thought it was amusing certainly. 
Uh, we haven't talked about, though, does Hillary Clinton really want Elizabeth Warren on the ticket? And uh, obviously she would bring a electoral dimension. And as Eli said, the, the great value of Elizabeth Warren is in a year that demands and rewards authenticity, maybe that brings something to Hillary Clinton's campaign that she doesn't have on her own. But we have no evidence that suggests they have a warm relationship. In fact, from everything uh, or at least the chatter is that they don't have a warm relationship at all. And also, you have the risk if you're Hillary Clinton that maybe Elizabeth Warren outshines you because of her ability to connect. And Doesn't that happen every every totally. year though? Like, Biden, there was talk that Biden was doing it to Obama in 2008, which sounds ludicrous in retrospect, right? Mm-hmm. Like Obama's this transformational first black president, but like there w- there was a lot of talk like after Biden joined the table. Look how much energy he has. Look, you know, I, I the, I've. Well, That's definitely not, true, but there is a level of caution when it comes to Hillary Clinton that I think uh, outdistances and outpaces, say, Barack Obama's uh, level of caution. You know, I, let me just say, it's very hard to have this conversation. I would imagine it's very hard for the Clinton insiders to have this kind of conversation without knowing who Donald Trump is going to pick because the biggest consideration is how that person looks and uh, performs on a stage against the rival Veep nominee. The other thing I'll, I'll say about this, so I, I, I said at the beginning of the segment, you know, Democrats have this this pattern of picking former presidential candidates to be their vice presidential running mates. I, I think maybe part of that has to do with the fact that Democrats have a habit of nominating people who have never run for president before. Obama, first-time candidate. Kerry, first-time candidate. Clinton, first-time candidate. This is now only Al Gore, again, in this last She's three or four— She's not a first-time candidate. I don't even understand that point. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a first-time uh-huh. candidate. Hillary Clinton and Al Gore are the only two repeat presidential candidates to win the nomination in the last 30 years for for Democrats. And so maybe she doesn't feel like she needs that established national presence on the ticket with her as much, which opens up a range of other uh, potential nominees. People have talked about Cory Booker, about Amy Klobuchar, Sherrod Brown, Tim Kaine, you know, a host of other senators, Julian Castro in the Obama administration. The list goes on. It's funny because I think that, uh, you know, very early on in one of our shows, we said that the bench was incredibly thin and Democrats did not have a lot of choices. And so suddenly we talk about Elizabeth Warren and she pops to the top of the list. And it's because the, the bench is so darn weak. That's a great point because, uh, you know, oftentimes we, we joke around in our conversations about uh, top leadership in both parties that the, the Democratic Party is a gerontocracy. And uh, this is a reflection of it that she would come to the, the top. But uh and a reflection of the sort of the hollowing out of the Democratic Party outside of Washington, especially. And you have to think, is that best for the Democratic Party going forward? Uh, or is it better to bring a younger uh, voice or maybe, uh, you know, a hit a different demographic, something that will lean the party into the future? It's well, we haven't can- talked about Bernie, right? Bernie's, I mean... Bernie hasn't officially suspended his campaign. We don't know what he's going to do. It's unlikely that she would put him on the ticket. But he's out there saying, well, you know, I'd consider it. We need a progressive vice president. I mean, he does have some leverage in terms of what kind of a, you know, show and and protest he wants to put on at the convention. So that's also a factor in in this decision on some level. And what's interesting there is... uh, one of the things that we reported out in uh, our story the other night uh, about Bernie uh, Sanders' campaign was the frustration uh, among uh, in the Sanders inner circle among Bernie Sanders himself at the lack of consideration for vice president. 
uh, I think he wants to at least be acknowledged and recognized. We're going to have a discussion that is public at some point that is going to be almost like a bone thrown to that campaign. But uh, if you're the Clinton campaign, number one, those folks don't think he's a viable uh, ticket mate to begin with because they didn't think he was a viable uh, nominee in any case. But you're still going to have to go through the exercise of floating that balloon at some point. And I have to recognize voters found him fairly viable given the millions of votes that he got. Imagine trying to control Bernie Sanders on message. <laughs> well, I mean, in a Donald Trump campaign, I mean, what's, you know, what's the difference? And they, well, at some point, though, the Democrats do have to reckon with the, the, the Bernie's central argument right now, which is if you look at the head-to-head polling with Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders beats him time and time again. Every single poll matching up Donald Trump with Bernie Sanders, except for one taken over the last year, has shown Sanders with a double-digit lead. And that's pretty interesting, and you can't just dismiss that very easily. That's it for us. Thank you, Eli. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Fun time as always. And Charlie. Thanks, Kristen. And thank you for listening. If you liked our show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. And look for us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app.